Father, we ask that as we open up your word, that you would once again open up our hearts and minds and that you would give us illumination by your spirit. Father, we need light in our darkness. We need you to expose us and guide us and direct us with your good light so that we could live well in this world. And so would you come among us, we pray, and give us understanding into ourselves and into what life is all about. And more than anything, give us understanding of the beauty and the glory of your son, Jesus. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. So in March 2017, Time Magazine ran a cover story entitled, Beyond He or She, How a New Generation is Redefining the Meaning of Gender. And for the cover story, Time interviewed dozens of people from all over the United States regarding their attitudes concerning sexuality and gender. And they talked to people ranging from San Francisco all the way to small town Missouri. And uh, many of them said that both sexuality and gender are less like a toggle between this or that and more like a spectrum that allows for many endless permutations of identity. And some who, are identif- who uh, were interviewed identified as straight, others as gay, uh, some as gender queer or asexual or gender nonconforming, and several said that they used the pronoun uh, they rather than he or she to refer to themselves. And of course, this variety of identities reflects something in our culture at large. You know, Facebook, with its one billion users, has about 60 different options for gender, which is just confusing, I think, to a lot of us. Uh, The dating app Tinder has about 40. And commenting on this whole situation, one LGBTQ activist quoted in the article said this. He said, there have been those generations who lived by the rules and those generations that break the rules. Young people today are redefining everything. Now, I don't know if it's true that young people today are redefining everything. I guess it's, it depends on uh, who they are and where they live and what we mean by everything. But I don't know about you, but I get the sense that the landscape around us has been changing at a breakneck speed. And many of us just feel like the ground beneath our feet is shifting. And I, I mean, many of us, we think, look, if, if I went to bed in 2010, and then didn't wake up until 2023, I would, I would be forgiven if the first words that came out of my mouth are, uh, Toto, we are not in Kansas anymore. You know, and, and many of us are uncomfortable with this new reality. You know, some of us are fearful and anxious. We're worried about our kids and what our grandkids are being taught in school. Uh, We're concerned about legislation and what it might mean for freedom of speech and religion. And and many of us just long for simpler times when, you know, boys wrestled, you know, and played with guns and little girls wore pretty dresses and still played Barbie. And Barbie didn't make movies to deconstruct the patriarchy. And, um, and, And on the other hand, uh, there are others, and maybe some younger folks among us, who you, you at least welcome some of the changes. You know, you find that, that this is a gentler world than, than the previous one. And you never fit the stereotypes anyway. And finally, somebody is naming and making room for the gender confusion you have felt. And rather than ostracizing you, you actually feel somewhat seen and understood. And you appreciate a world where more diverse expressions are treated with greater levels of kindness. 
And, and still others, um, you know, uh, among us, you might, you, might, you might feel like, look, there may be something to deconstructing gender stereotypes and creating space for different ways of being a man or a woman. And yet you think, look, to do violence, physical violence to our God-given bodies with expensive and invasive surgeries and drugs just doesn't seem right. You know, the old Jewish proverb said, do not too easily discard the traditions that have made their way all the way to you. And many people are just quickly discarding something for an ideology that's not but five minutes old. And we wonder if generations from now look back at this time on human history, they would be forgiven for asking what on earth were they thinking? And of course, with all the blurring of distinctions, many of us in the church and outside have find ourselves asking that question, well, what does it mean to be a man or a woman anyway? Uh, what are we to make of, of gender anyway? And can the Bible help us with these questions? And can the Bible help us navigate this really, really confusing cultural moment we inhabit? Well, we, we, we've been in a series over the last several weeks entitled Human, and we have been asking very basic existential questions that every thoughtful person at some point in their life will and should ask. Questions like, who am I? And why am I here anyway? And what does it mean to be human? And, and to bring those, those questions, really, really important existential questions, into dialogue uh, with the very founding texts in the Bible. And so over the last several weeks, we've been bringing these important questions into dialogue with the opening chapters of the book of Genesis, Genesis 1 and 2. And one of the things that immediately strikes you when you read these texts um, is, is, is this, uh, especially in the passage we heard read for us, is that God did not create any nonspecific or vague humans. What does it say? It says this, so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And after God creates them male and female, God looks at them and says, maleness and femaleness is what? It is very good. And so there are no non-specific, vague humans in God's original creation. There are male and female humans in God's creation. And according to the Bible, it is very, very good. And so what I wanna argue this morning is simply this. I wanna argue that the biblical vision of male and female that we get in these opening chapters of the Bible is unique and it is compelling and it is very, very good. And so how I wanna do that is, um, is, is I wanna contrast the biblical vision of maleness and femaleness and, and what the Bible says in, in these very opening chapters about being a man or woman created in the image of God, I, I wanna bring that vision into clear relief be, by putting it in contrast with two alternative views, two alternative visions of maleness and femaleness. And first, I, I wanna contrast it with uh, what we might say is the traditional view, uh, which is male superiority and then I want to contrast it with uh, the postmodern view, which is sameness between men and women. And then I want to stand back and reflect together on the biblical view. And so let's, let's begin 
Let's begin by talking together about the traditional view. So um, I, I too quickly jumped to my next slide. You don't mind, we put it back. Um, but the, the, the traditional view simply, uh, affirms male superiority. And so it goes basically like this. Men and women are distinct and different, and uh, their difference lies in this. Men are superior. They are more intelligent. They are wiser. They have more reason than women, and therefore, they are rulers, and women are the ruled. And arguably, the most famous or infamous uh, character uh, to voice this view in uh, history is the fourth century BCE philosopher, Aristotle. And Aristotle believed that humans in their essential essence were both body and soul, and so body mattered, and it mattered in such a way that women were dehumanized. And so here's Aristotle in his own words. He said this, as between the sexes, the male is by nature superior, and the female is inferior. The one rules and the other is ruled. This principle of necessity extends to all mankind. And so for Aristotle, men are superior, women are inferior, women are ruled, and men are the rulers. And he, he actually believed that women in the language of Aristotle were, quote, misbegotten men, that they were somehow deformed or distorted maleness. And so for, for Aristotle, the woman was a deformed male. And so to be human is to be man, and to be woman is to have a deficient humanity. Now, of course, in our day, we recoil at this kind of talk, right? And this kind of rhetoric is just repulsive. But what's crazy is that this view is what dominated in the Greco-Roman world in which Christianity was born. Uh, in fact, uh, in the, in the Greco-Roman world, uh, men outnumbered women 1.5 to 1. And do you know why? It, it wasn't natural. It was because in their world, when a woman was born, an unwanted girl, she would oftentimes be discarded. Uh, it, was, it was illegal in the first century to discard unwanted babies by just leaving them out in, to be uh, exposed to the elements, and they would just be left to die. And so bad ideas have real-world consequences. Amen? And this was a bad, bad, bad idea, and it brought about serious and harmful world consequences. Now, one of the reasons why I bring up Aristotle is because Aristotle also had a disproportionate effect and impact on the thinking of many of the, the church's best theologians and thinkers. And many uh, of the church's theologians like Aquinas, uh, drank deeply from the wells of Aristotle, and he imbibed his views and instantiated into the official teaching and practice of the church. And so even though uh, wherever Christianity has gone, you know, um, sociologists like Rodney Stark from Baylor University have, have argued convincingly that wherever the gospel of Jesus Christ has gone, it has lifted the status of women. However, also, where Christianity has spread, there has oftentimes uh, been confused with this, th this ideology of male supremacy and th this, this view that men are superior in intellect and reason and thus are fit to rule, and women, therefore, are fit to be ruled. 
Men are superior and women are inferior. So that's Aristotle. That's the traditional view. Now, let's contrast that with uh, the postmodern view. So many people, especially over the last 60 years, have rightly exposed the, the damaging impact of ideologies of male supremacy, and they've begun to deconstruct them. And one of the main views that have taken hold, especially in our culture, is the sameness view, put forward by many, many uh, feminist theorists over the last uh, 30, 40, 50 years. Now, um, whereas in the traditional view, men and women are different, and the difference is, is that men are superior, in the sameness view, men and women are interchangeable. And so there are feminist theorists. Now, let me just say a caveat. I am no expert on feminist critical theory. And so I'm going to do my best just to, to give a, a brief distillation of, of, of the idea. It's simply this. Um, they, they want to separate sex and biology on the one hand, which has to do with the body, from... Gender, on the other hand, which is a social construct, which has to do with identity and language and performance. And so the work of feminist theory has been to deconstruct the supposed essential differences between men and women because they are oppressive and constricting, and they work out an inequality and an unequal dignity and unequal humanity and unequal opportunity. And so they say, look, we live in a world where difference and inequality go hand in hand. And so if you can diminish the difference between male and female, you might just come up with a more just and equitable society. And so one radical feminist puts the idea like this. She says that she, quote, longs for the day when gender distinctives have effectively disappeared. When no longer does anyone ask, is it a boy or a girl? When that information is as irrelevant as the color of the child's eyes, only then will men and women be socially interchangeable and really equal. And so for equality, according to this idea, uh, you need uh, socially interchangeable men and women. And only when that happens will you not need gender at all and we will enter a more just and equitable society. Now, of course, the, the problem that the Christian worldview has with this is that human beings in our created essence are embodied. We were given bodies. And so the body we, we inhabit this world in matters. Uh, God has redeemed our bodies through Jesus. Jesus was raised in a physical body. And one day Jesus will return bodily and we too will experience glorified bodies. So what I want to do now, though, is I want to contrast the male superiority view and the sameness view with the biblical view, the biblical vision. And in the previous view, you know, the traditional view and the late modern view, men and women are interchangeable, you know, and um, in, in the traditional view, men are superior to women. But, but what are we supposed to make of the biblical view? Well, I want to suggest that the Bible, by contrast, gives us this compelling and beautiful and good vision of what it means to be embodied as a male or female created in the image of God. 
And I want to suggest that in the biblical vision, men and women, number one, have a shared identity. We have a shared identity as those who have been created in the image of God. Both men and women bear the image of God. And look at how the text puts it. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image and after our likeness. So God, in his deliberation and in his, his freedom, God says, let's create the very pinnacle of all of my created acts. It will be human creatures who will uniquely and distinctly bear my image in the world. And so then God enacts his plan. Verse 27, so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And so just note this, men and women share equal worth and value and dignity by virtue of the fact that we are created in the image of God. But what does it mean to be created in the image of God? Now, we talked about this a few weeks ago, and I introduced you to a couple thinkers that help us get a little bit closer as to what that means. And uh, one author puts it like this, She says, God is neither male nor female, nor a combination of the two, but it takes both maleness and femaleness to contribute to imaging God. This is Phyllis Tribble. And it's interesting because she begins by saying, God is neither male nor female, nor a combination of the two. This is basic theology. God is not contained or limited by a human body, by neither a male nor female gender. In other words, God is not some supersized man or a supersized woman who uh, uh, exists somewhere out there in the universe. No, God is not composed of parts. God is infinite and eternal in being and love and beauty. And God is the ground and the source and the sustainer of both men and women, maleness and femaleness. However, God has called human beings into the world to contribute to imaging something of his glory in the world. And it takes both maleness and femaleness to contribute to imaging God. In other words, both men and women, in the language of Herman Bovink, we quoted this a while, a few weeks ago, are a finite creaturely impression of the divine. I love this. You are not a highly evolved bag of molecules. You are not a patient or a case or, uh, uh, in, the, in the words of Bertrand Russell, simply an accidental collocation of atoms. You are not the result of a mindless process that never had you in mind. No, you are a human. And you bear the divine image, the wonder and the glory of existing in this world as one who bears the image of God a finite creaturely impression of the divine, all that is in God, his spiritual essence, his virtues and perfections, his imminent self-distinctions, his self-communication, his self-revelation and creation finds its admittedly finite and limited analogy and likeness in humanity. Among creatures, human nature is the supreme and the most perfect revelation of God. And this means that our embodied existence as male or female, our our nature is, in the language of Gregory of Nyssa, uh, listen to this, whether you're a man or a woman, you were created fit 
for the exercise of royalty. I love this. Our nature was created to be royal from the first. In other words, you are surrounded by a room full of kings and queens. You know, this is what uh, the Old Testament scholar Ellen Davis, Davis referred to as the democratization of the image of God. In the ancient world, you know, again, we said this a while back, like it was the kings. It was, you know, Ramesses, you know, who was the, the morning and the evening star, you know, and who was the representative of the gods on earth and therefore everyone would serve him. Now, in God's world, all human beings are kings and queens. Uh, we are surrounded by a room full of image bearers. And so if you're sitting next to a man, just say, you're a king. If you're sitting next to a woman, just say, you're a queen. Go ahead and do that right now. Just say, hey, king, hey, queen. And so let, let, let's just say this. Listen, from the beginning... Men and woman was never created simply to be objectified or sexualized or used or abused or silenced or put in their place, but men and women were created from the very beginning with immense worth and dignity, bearing the image of God. Kings and queens in God's world. There are no ordinary People. You have never met an ordinary person. We are surrounded by people who were created from the beginning to bear the image of God in this world. Yes, we have fallen way short of that. As we've said again and again, we are not very good at doing human, are we? And yet from the beginning, it was not so. So number one, the biblical vision of maleness and femaleness is of shared identity. We all share this unique and beautiful identity of being created in the image of God. But not only shared identity, also shared vocation. We have been given a job to do in this world that we are created to work together to accomplish. And what is that vocation? What is that job? Well, Genesis 1, 28 puts it like this. God blessed them and he said to them, he said first, he said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. What is the first job that God gives to his human creatures that they are to partner in? What is the work, the vocation that men and women partner together in, according to this verse, as image bearers. Number one, it is in building healthy homes and families. This is the shared work of men and women. And listen, single moms and single dads who are working their butt off to care well for their children, they are, you are some of the heroes in this world. But from the beginning, you were not intended to engage in that work alone. The work of building and sustaining and nurturing homes is, a, is the work, the important vocation of a mom and dad working together. And, and of course, we're in, a, we're in a world right now where the work that we value most, the work that we are most impressed by is not the work of family-ing. It is not the work of the home. It's typically the work that generates a lot of money. 
We are in an individualistic, consumer-oriented, materialistic economy. And so the people who we value most in our world are celebrity. Uh, they are people who are making tons of money. We, we measure value and worth by how much if somebody gets paid. And if, somebody, if you want somebody to take your breath away, uh, you know, you engage with somebody who makes a lot of money doing all kinds of stuff. And uh, we are gonna switch our mics. But listen, we live in, in a culture and world that values the kind of work that's impressive, that generates a lot of money. So if you don't do that kind of work, and maybe you've spent the bulk of your time being a stay-at-home mom or dad or something like that, and then somebody asks you what you do, you feel like a loser, a louse. When you, well, I just, I, I, and then you try to come up with something that, that you can put forward to give evidence that you matter, that you value. But listen, from the very beginning, God called the man and woman first to this vocation, to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth. In other words, to build families and homes. And this is important, valuable, critical work. And it's work to which men and women were called to partner together in. You, this is obvious. And maybe, maybe this goes without saying. Maybe you didn't need to come to church to learn this one. But you do need a man and woman to produce a baby. Amen? Can I get a witness on that truth? Yes. But not just bring them into the world. You need parents to stay engaged and responsible and accountable for their kids not simply earning more money at work and making their identity and building a, a portfolio with all of their accolades and successes and accomplishments. What about the home? And, and this is the first work that the man and woman are called to partner together in. But not just a shared partnership and vocation in the home. Men and women, get this, are called to a shared partnership and vocation in the world. Because notice what he says. He says, not only fill the earth, but he says, subdue it. Uh, rule over it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Note well that the man was not given authority to rule over the woman. The woman and the man were given authority to rule over God's creation. Do you see that in the text? This is shared work of exercising leadership in God's good world. So this is shared vocation, and it is vocation that men and women cannot do alone. You know, in chapter two, uh, after God puts the man in the garden to work it and to keep it, he's like, whoa, 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 whoa. You know, everything's good here. <laughs> Everything is, everything's good. But there is one thing that is not good. It is not good for this man to be alone. And so what does he say? Then the Lord God said, it's not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now this word helper needs some explanation because it can sound a little bit demeaning as in um, uh, Santa's little helpers, you know, or how would you like to be daddy's little helper in the garage, you know? But, but uh Old Testament scholar Phyllis Tribble points out, she, she says, look, she says, the Hebrew word ezer, rendered here as helper, is totally misleading. The English word helper suggests an assistant, a subordinate, indeed an inferior, while the Hebrew word ezer carries no such connotation. To the contrary, in the Hebrew scriptures, this word describes God. In other words, God is often in the Old Testament described as 
Israel's Azer. Is that because he is Israel's subordinate? No. Uh, God is described as Azer as the superior who creates and saves Israel. In our story, the accompanying phrase, corresponding to it, tempers this connotation of superiority to specify identity, mutuality, and equality. In other words, quite simply this, you and I cannot do this work alone. Men and women need each other. Uh, We need each other in the home, and we need each other in the world. Uh, And so from the beginning, the biblical vision is of a shared identity, and it is of shared vocation. And thirdly, and finally, it, it involves beneficial difference. Men are not women, and women are not men. Again, maybe that goes without saying. But I do want you to note in the text God looks at what he declares, and he declares it good. He created the male and female, and after that, he's like, this is very, very good. So he creates us with a different anatomy and physiology and neurochemistry. And of course, these differences between men and women are beautiful and they they are so good that they can result in even the production of a whole new beautiful image bearer, a new life in this world. And it can reflect itself in the different but complementary ways in which men and women can lead in the home and out in the culture. You know, um, in uh, in the created world, biodiversity is a really, really important thing. And if you have one crop of species, like you only have one crop, you have a homogeneous crop, you know what you start breeding in a homogeneous crop? Lots and lots of pests. And you know what you need in order for health? You need biodiversity because biodiversity actually expels the pests. And listen, you know know, know what a room full of only men need? Some some gender diversity. And a room full of women need is some gender diversity. We need each other. We need the other because we can complement each other. You know, there's a beautiful word that's used to describe this. It's complementarian. And this word simply means that we have differences and those differences are beneficial. And health is increased through this kind of diversity. It is a symbiotic relationship that makes everything better. And so there is a shared identity. We are image bearers. There is shared vocation called to work in the world and work in the home. And then there is a a beneficial difference where there is the other and the other is not. You. I remember I was reading a, a book by uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer on Genesis 1 and 2, and his chapter on the creation of, uh, of the formation of woman from the side of the man, he, he entitled that chapter, The Mysterious Other. And of course, uh, if, you, if you just have a, a sister and you're a brother, like that, that can feel like a mysterious other. You know, your female friends can feel like mysterious others. Your male friends can feel like mysterious others because we are different, but the difference is not there in order to pit each other against each other. It is there so that we might enrich each other's lives through the diversity that God created in God's world. 
maleness and femaleness is good. And, and let me just say before I move on, listen, there might be someone in this room who maybe in your own internal world, you feel confused about your own gender identity and, and you feel like, I don't fit the stereotypes and I don't know what that means. And I would just wanna invite you to consider that maybe your embodied existence is better than you believe and it's better than you know. And maybe, just maybe, there is a goodness that can develop in your life by leaning into the limitations of what you feel like doesn't always fit. And maybe there's a fullness that can grow there because God, in the very beginning, said, look, this is good. Maleness and femaleness is good. And so there is shared identity, there is shared vocation, and there is beneficial difference. This is the biblical vision. And now what I want to do is just stand back. There's some biodiversity, by the way. Isn't that gorgeous? That's a farm in Los Angeles. And it was built around this idea of biodiversity. Listen, let me just close with three statements in light of all of this. You're like, what am I supposed to do with this this week? <laughs> Number one, appreciate, don't disparage each other. You know what's not funny? Racial jokes are not funny. And you know what else is not funny? Sexist jokes are not funny. Memes that disparage and demean either men or women are not funny because they further instantiate through our rhetoric something that goes fundamentally against what God's word states about men and women. We are not to disparage each other. We are not to ignore or make the other invisible or disempower or silence the voice of the other. We are to honor the other and cherish the other for who they are. They are not you. And maybe because of that, they have something to bring that you don't have. Appreciate, don't disparage each other. You know, James says our speech matters. Words matter. Memes matter. You know, he says, the tongue is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and Father. And with it, we curse people who are made in the image of God. And it should never be that we send off little memes or little things that are just disparaging of other people. And it's common. Appreciate, don't objectify the other. You know, oftentimes in church, uh, and this is true in evangelical spaces and in purity culture, women are not often seen as equal image bearers of God who contribute and who serve. Oftentimes, they're, they are objectified and seen as a stumbling block or a, a potential cause for sin or something like that. Listen, we have got to do better in the church than objective. Let me just talk to our men. We have got to do better in church than, I, than objectifying our sisters. These are created, women are created in the very image of God. And women in, in our culture have been traumatized by men because they've been abused and they've been sexualized and, and they've been raped. And, and there's so much pain that so many of you sisters have experienced. And, and may we be a community where women are honored and they're valued as equal partners in the mission of God, in the work of God, as, as those who are called to bear the image of God. May we appreciate 
and not disparage each other. And let me just say, on the other hand, women, sometimes maybe because you have felt traumatized by men, you know, there was a a little uh, saying that was uh, popular during the hashtag MeToo movement. And the saying was, kill all men. And that was just a saying that kind of was floating around. And there's a reason for that. It's a way of saying, look, you know, men have been awful. I hate men, they're terrible. And listen, some men have been and some men are. But let's believe a different kind of reality for this community and let's live into that reality in terms of how we view and honor and dignify one another, amen? So appreciate, don't disparage the other. Second, focus on character, not on stereotypes. When I was in Kenya, there was this great, um, (laughs) they did this rite of passage for the 12 and 13 year old boys where they took them away to a retreat. And on this retreat, they had these young Kenyan boys in this rite of passage from boyhood to manhood. They had them to go out and kill a goat. And then they were to carry this bloody goat in the middle of the night through a field of hyenas. And I was like, if we did that, we would be put in jail in our youth ministry, you know? But I was like, what is that all about? And, and, and Pastor Fred, he, was, he said, look, men need resilience and they need courage and they need strength. They need to develop fortitude. And we need to see a generation of men who will, who will bear responsibility for their families and live into this calling and, and serve as servant leaders. And, and do you see what he's getting at? He's talking about the cultivation and the formation of character. And I think when we think about what it looks like to be a man or woman, where we can begin first is not with the stereotype, because some of us men, and I'll put myself in this category, I don't work on cars, I don't work with wood, I like to make soup, you know? (laughs) And I'm comfortable with that. I cry sometimes, and I'm okay with that, you know? And, And look, the invitation is not to grow into a stereotype It's to lean into character and virtue. You know, even when the New Testament addresses men and women, and Paul enters into the typical standard household codes in the ancient world, and he starts uh, addressing them, Paul speaks this word to the women. He says, uh, well, first he says, submit yourselves one to another, which means to sacrifice your own needs and put the needs of another ahead of yourself. And then he says, and wives for your husbands. In other words, sacrifice your own desires and, um, and then put the other ahead of yourself. And then he turns around and he confronts the husband and he says, and husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, laying down his own life. In other words, sacrificing his life for the sake of his bride, putting her needs ahead of his own. And, and the call is, is to live into lives of virtue and character for us all. You know, in the tradition that I grew up in, I was taught men are to lead, women are to follow. Men are initiators, women are responders. And listen, the problem with those cliche statements are not what they affirm. Men are to lead. And by God's grace, would this church be a church where more and more men step up and take on the mantle of leadership? 
servant leadership, sacrificial leadership. You know, I want a, a young man who tries to date one of my daughters to take her out to dinner for crying out loud and pay for her food and like, be, you know, right? Can I get a witness? You know, Matoni, yes. None of this Dutch thing, you know? Listen, the, the problem is not that men are called to lead. It's, it's the question of what is that, that like, are, are women only called to follow and respond? Well, what if you're leading students in a classroom or you're a mayor exerting leadership in a city or you're uh, a legal justice fighting for, for the rights of the marginalized on the edges? And I mean, what if you, like, women, of course, are called to lead. You're made in the image of God. You've been called to be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and exert leadership in God's world. Women by God's own authority have been authorized to lead in God's world. You see, it's in the text. Now, of course, the way in which we lead is different and manifests itself differently with men and women for sure. And, and yes, we want to reject passivity men and, and we want to be pr protectors and those who provide, but, but, but let's not make women invisible in our own pursuit of our God-given call to lead, amen? So number one, appreciate, don't disparage the other. Focus on character, not on stereotypes. And finally, we'll close with this. We all need help. You know, in the fall, one of the key areas that's impacted is the relationship between men and women. He will rule over you, the text said, as a part of the curse. Subjugate and dominate, and your desire will be for him, maybe for his power. There would be a, a, a fighting for control. There would be power struggles, and there would be abuse and domination and all kinds of pain that's wrought in the world because we do not treat each other as those who have been created in the image of God with shared identity and worth and value and a shared mission that we partner together in, and we don't honor the beneficial difference that exists among us. And it creates all kinds of problems. And so many of our lives have been marked by those problems. You have been traumatized and hurt and wounded because somebody was not the man or woman they were supposed to be. And, and you struggle. And, and, and some of you, you've contributed to this. You've wounded and you have hurt and you have objectified. We are all, we are all in need of help and healing and redemption. But here is the good news of the gospel. Christ has not left us simply to suffer and wallow in our own brokenness, to remain subject now to the curse and to death. Christ came into the world to break the power of sin and darkness, to release us of the curse, to begin a work of regeneration and healing and renewal so that the divine image could begin to be restored in our lives. And may we look to Jesus to be the one that continually nourishes us and supports us and lead us in this high calling.